I've enjoyed worshiping with you all today. It's good to be back in the Shoals area of Alabama. Thank you for praying me through the jungles of Panama. This next week, if you would pray me through the jungles of our denomination's General Assembly in St. Louis, I would appreciate that as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We're in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Judges. We've been spending uh, the summer in Judges, and today we're up to that judge named Gideon. Now, we're going to spend several weeks on Gideon, so when we don't get very far into the story of Gideon, don't be alarmed. We're going to spend more time with him, but the Lord just wouldn't let me go very far in this narrative this week with what he had to teach his people. So let me review just a moment with you, and then we will dig in and look at this together. If you've been with us, or you're like me and you just forget, the review is this. Remember, we've seen a pattern or a cycle in the book of Judges. And we've said it's a really interesting pattern because we recognize that pattern in our own lives as Christians. And that pattern has been this, that the people of God rebel, that they do evil in the sight of the Lord, that that leads them into some type of ruin. The Lord and Judges usually raises up some foreign power to oppress them. That causes them to repent. The people of God cry out to God and ask uh, Him to save them. God responds by raising up a rescuer or a judge. Um, and then there is peace. He frees them and there's peace in the land until the judge dies. And then the cycle... Peace, right? The people of God do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the whole process starts over again. And so uh, Judges chapter 2 told us, hey, this is going to be the cycle with all these judges. And so Judges 2 just set it out for us. And then we've seen this process happen with four different judges. So we've seen this process over and again. We've seen this cycle repeat itself. Now i got to tell you, with Gideon, the cycle changes. Okay, And so because this has been repeated over and over again, it's important that we hear and recognize how the pattern changes because that's what God is trying to point out when he changes the pattern. You see this in, in Genesis 1 and 2, right? God makes something and says it is good. And he makes something else and he says it is good. He makes something else and says it is good. Seven times he says it is good, it is good, it is good. Then all of a sudden he says it is not good. And that grabs our attention. So what changes, the difference, I want you to listen for that, this change in the cycle that we've seen, because that's the first thing God has to teach us in this narrative about Gideon. So remember the cycle, be listening for how the cycle changes. As we come to Judges chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear now God's word. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, well, rebellion, check. We got that part, right? That's the way it always starts. All right, let's keep going. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. There's your ruin, check, right? And now it's going to tell us how bad things were uh, from the Midianites. Verse 2, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds, for whatever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. 
For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came in. Now let me just stop right there. Did you know the Midianites were the first to use camels in warfare? It's true. You can look it up. Not now. Google it later. But the Midianites were the first to use camels, sort of like we would use a, a cavalry. You know, we would have men on horseback. These guys would come in with camels. And it allowed them to make quick raids on other people's lands. They were kind of nomadic and they wandered around. But the way that it worked is that they could make a quick raid into your home and then they could escape on their camels that could travel a long distance. And so they could raid your land and then leave without really any fear of your striking back because you couldn't cover the distance to get to where their camp was. And so that's why they used these camels. It's kind of like long-distance bombers today, right? Just the range of the camels were so long they could come attack you and then get away and that you couldn't get to them in the same amount of time. And so their method was interesting. It was not political control with a military government or direct rule and, and taxing the people like you see later in the New Testament when under the Roman Empire uh, as God's people are ruled by the Romans. But this is more of an economic exploitation. They just invade, take their crops, take their livestock, and then leave Israel in this extreme state of poverty. So that's what's going on for seven years. All right, let's pick up in verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. There's the repent cycle, right? They're in a bad place. They call out to God. So check that. We've got uh, rebel and ruin and repent. Let's see what happens next. Verse 7. When the Lord of Israel, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent... Now, before I read the next part, what are we expecting it to say? The Lord sent what? A rescuer, a judge. That he sends some military leader that he raises up to free them from oppression. That's what, that's what he's done every time so far. Four times in a row. That's what he's always done. He sends a judge, a military leader, somebody to throw off the yoke of rule of these people who are oppressing them. What does verse 7 say? When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites... The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. He doesn't send a warrior this time. He sends a prophet. He sends one to speak his very word to the people. So God, the interruption in the cycle is that God sent a prophet before he sends a judge. We're going to get to Gideon in a little bit. And he does send Gideon. And Gideon does lead the people to throw off the yoke of rule of the Midianites. But first, the difference in the cycle is God sent a prophet before he sent a judge. This time, God sent a spokesman before he sent a savior. This time, God sends a word from God before he sends a warrior from God. Now, why would he do that? Why is he changing up the order here? Why is he changing the cycle? Why is he doing something different at this point? Well, that's what we're supposed to ask, right? That we're supposed to recognize, hey, this is different. What are we supposed to learn from this? God's doing something different. There must be something different we're supposed to learn. Well, let's see what the prophet says. 
That'll help us understand what God has for us to learn by this difference in the cycle. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So what's God say to him? He reminds them of his faithfulness. Hey, remember, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. The reason you're even in this land is because I brought you here. Overcame the most powerful superpower today. Now, you need to understand, all this had happened about 200 years before the time of Gideon. So the Israelites had been in the promised land about the same amount of time we've been in this country, right? We tend to think all this stuff runs together, but it doesn't. Time has passed. And so they've been in the land about 200 years, and so God's reminding him, hey, listen, I'm the one who brought you here. I'm the one who gave you this land, and I warned you before you came in not to worship other gods, not to take on the gods of the people who were in that place. And so God is upset that they have begun to worship other gods, So what's God doing here? Before he sends a warrior or a savior to save them, God wants them to see their sin, that they've not been faithful to him, that they haven't obeyed him. God wants them to see their sin so that they will grieve over their sin and so that they will turn to God alone and trust in God alone. That's basically repentance, right? That we see our sin, that we grieve our sin, that we turn from the ways that we've strayed and we turn back to God. God's calling them to repent. Now, you may say, well, isn't that what they did in verse 6, right? It says the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Isn't that what they did? Well, not exactly. I'm not sure they're seeing their sin and grieving over their sin and turning to God alone. You need to understand the situation that existed at this time. You see, the people who came into the land continued to do all the religious stuff God had told them to do, okay? They, they did the sacraments. They circumcised their kids. They had the Passover meal every year. They continued to, uh, to honor God in those ways and to do the things. He, they taught their children. You can read in verse 13, if you keep going, Gideon will say, yeah, our fathers have told us about all the great things that God did when he freed us from Egypt. So these people are still pouring the truths of the faith into their kids. They're still celebrating the Passover meal. They're still circumcising their children. So they're still doing the things that God has asked them to do But they've started worshiping Baal as well. They have started building Asherah poles as well. You see, the pagan idea of the day is that there were different gods for different things. So evidently, these folks begin to see God. He's the one who frees us from oppression. So if we're in oppression, we'll call out to him. He freed us from Egypt. He's freed people before. If we're in oppression, we'll call out to God. But once I'm free and I'm planting my crops, I'm going to pray to Baal, who's a God who helps with crops. When I'm having children and I want to have a larger family, I erect these Asherah poles because that helps with fertility. 
And so, yeah, I'm still doing all this stuff, but I'm doing all these other things as well, and God is not pleased with this. And he calls them to repentance. And you need to understand that they don't destroy the idols that God is upset about until down in verse 25. They have not repented yet. They're still doing all the religious stuff, but they've added these other things, and they're looking to things other than God to sustain them and to fulfill them as well. They've not turned to God alone. They've not grieved over their sin. They're grieving their circumstances They don't like it that the Midianites come in and take everything, but they're not grieving over their sin, not to the point that they would turn from other idols and turn back to the living God. So they have a grief because of their circumstances, but not a sorrow over their sin that is leading them to repentance. The Apostle Paul writes about this to the New Testament church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, down around verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes that there is a godly sorrow that brings repentance, and that leads to salvation. But there's this worldly sorrow that leads to death. So the Apostle Paul is describing two types of sorrow, this godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation, and a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Well, well, what's the, the difference in those two? Uh, how do I know what, what one is and what the other is? Well, this worldly sorrow, we're sorry, but it doesn't lead to repentance. We just don't like the circumstances we're in. And this godly sorrow, it does lead to repentance. Well, well, why is that the case? Why does one sorrow lead to repentance and the other sorrow not lead to repentance? What's the difference? Well, worldly sorrow is more horizontal, right? It's sorrow over the consequences of sin that we see in the world and that we see in our life. But it doesn't grieve the vertical. It doesn't grieve the harm to our relationship with God. Worldly sorrow is only grieving the horizontal effects of sin, the horizontal circumstances that sin has caused. In this case, the Midianites coming in and taking everything. There's a problem with that kind of worldly sorrow. And here's the problem. The problem is this. The people are are grieving their circumstances, and they cry out for God to take away the bad circumstances. But the problem is, if you take away the bad circumstances, the sinful behavior comes back because the heart was never changed. Do you see that? That's what this book of Judges has shown. It's shown us over and over and over again that God has intervened and made their circumstances better, but because their hearts don't change, they go right back to their sin once they're given freedom for a while. It's an important lesson for us to learn that just taking away the bad circumstances doesn't change our hearts And the sinful behavior that caused those tough circumstances is going to rear its ugly head again. We've seen it in the book of Judges. Godly sorrow hates the sin because our sin grieves God. It's more of a vertical relationship. And our hatred of the sin, not just the circumstances that it causes, but our hatred of the sin itself, that sin in our heart, 
That is what kills sin at its root in our heart and allows us to have heart transformation. Worldly sorrow, if you think about it, is really just more about us, right? We're saying, hey, look how grieved I am. Look how much I am hurting. Look how my heart is breaking. Look how bad off I am. Look how terrible these circumstances that I am in. But godly sorrow that leads to repentance is much more about God than it's about me. Godly sorrow says, look how I have grieved God. Look at how I have broken God's heart. After all God has done for me, how could I be unfaithful to him? A couple of examples of this kind of thinking that may help us. Remember in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph has been sold by his brothers, his jealous brothers, uh, to, into slavery, and then he's sold into Potiphar's house. And in, Gen- in Genesis 39, Potiphar has put Joseph in charge of everything because God is with Joseph and God is blessing Joseph. But Mrs. Potiphar knows this is Joseph because he's good looking, Right? And so she, day after day, says, come to bed with me. I want to be with you, right? And do you remember what Joseph said to her? Joseph says, look, there is nothing in this household that my master Potiphar has withheld from me except for you. So how could I do this evil, wicked thing and sin against... And you expect him to say, my master Potiphar, horizontal, right? That's not what he says. He says, how can I do this evil, wicked thing and sin against God? (laughs) The one who has blessed me so much. That's the difference in the horizontal and the vertical. Another example. Think about David, a man after God's own heart. Remember, he doesn't go off to war when kings are in the season. They should go off to war. And he sees Bathsheba, and he has her brought to him. And they're together. She ends up getting pregnant. I don't know if that was sin against her. I don't know if that was consensual. I don't know exactly about that. But when he finds out she's pregnant, he has Uriah, her husband, come home. But he won't even go home to his wife while his men are in the field. And so David gives an order that will result in Uriah's death. He basically has her husband killed and then brings her into his household. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan. He's convicted about this. And you can read in Psalm 51, down around verse 4, as David grieves this and is confessing to God. Do you remember what he says in Psalm 51, verse 4? He prays to God and he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. (laughs) That's odd, because I'm pretty sure you had Uriah killed. (laughs) You certainly sinned against him. But what David is saying is that what's grieving my heart is not even that I killed. It's that how I've grieved God. The vertical was bigger for him than the horizontal. That's the difference. That's what this looks like. How about us? Let's not just make it about these stories from the Old Testament. How does this apply to us today? Well, we're a people who've remained faithful to God. We haven't start, stopped worshiping. You're here in church this week, right? We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pour the truths into faith into our kids. We haven't turned away from God. Yet, we don't look to God alone, do we? 
if God can get us what we really want, then we will use God as a means to get that in, right? But that other thing is what we really want, not God himself. I suppose for us, if they looked at God as just the one who frees from oppression, many times we look at God. God is the one who sent Jesus so I can get into heaven, right? God is the God, this God, this crowd of Christians, he's the God who gets me out of hell. So I want that. But then when it comes for providing for my family, I'm going to turn and trust in this money that I've accumulated or that I've inherited. And I'm trusting in that instead of trusting in the one true God. I'm going to trust in my skills that I can produce for my family. I'm going to trust in my relational connections. Well, we do it too, don't we? We trust God for some things, but then we look to the gods of our age, money, popularity, wealth. We look to those things and trust in them without ever turning from God, but we add these other things. We want Jesus. We want a relationship with him. But I also want your acceptance. And I'm not really happy unless I have Jesus and your acceptance or your respect. I'm not really happy unless I have Jesus and achievement. I'm not really happy unless I have Jesus and my comfort. I'm not really happy unless I have Jesus and I get to be in control of things and call all the shots. We add things that we have to have to be content and happy to the one true God. We all do it. Was it John Calvin who said our heart is an idol factory? We just produce idols. We take good things and turn them into God things and trust in them instead of the one true God. Our hearts do that continuously. The question I have for you is this. Do you grieve that in your heart? Do you hate that about your tendency? Do you have sorrow in your heart about your tendency to so quickly turn away from the one true God and trust in other things? We should feel that way. We should be broken. You may be here this morning and you say, you know, I, yeah, I see how I trust in other things before, besides God, but, but I'm not even sorry about that. What should I do? What do I do? Well, I'm glad you're here and I appreciate your honesty and you're looking into your own heart. And what I would say is this. If you know you trust in other things besides God, and I have people say to me, oh, well, I'd love to trust in God, but I just don't. That's just not where I am. My that would be, well, then cry out to God. <laughs> just be honest with him. Just say, I trust in other things besides you. Will you work in my heart? Will you help me to see my sin? Will you, I know my tendency to minimize it or to justify it. I would say first, cry out to God. Ask him to show your sin. Second, I'd say get in the word. God loves to use the word in order to show us our sin and to show us his faithfulness so that we might turn back to him. Come to, you know, the book study, I mean, we were in John chapter 16, it was so good and it was so rich and I felt my heart longing to come to him. That's what God did to the people here, right? Before he sent a warrior, he sent his word through a prophet. So cry out to God, get in the word. 
I'd say also get on to yourself. Pray that God allows you to see your sin. Not the sin of other people. Pray that God will help you to see your sin. In fact, let me just ask you, all right? I'm not going to take off my glasses. I can't even see you, okay? So I don't even know if you react to this. But let me just ask you if maybe you were doing what I did this week. That when I was talking about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and I was talking about being broken over your sin, you don't have, we're not going to have a show of hands here, but just be honest with yourself. How many of you were thinking about somebody else's sin and if that other person was showing godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? You know, I wonder, I think maybe it's worldly sorrow. I'm not even sure it's godly sorrow. You were thinking about somebody else's sin and if they were really repentant or not. Whoo! Let me tell you what God told me this week. When I was thinking about your sin, and I was thinking about whether you were godly in your sorrow or worldly, let me tell you what God said to me. Here's what he said to me very clearly. He said, I'm not talking to them right now. I'm talking to you. Allow God to speak to, to you about where you are in your sin, about your sorrow. Is it just over the bad circumstances, or do you really grieve that you've sinned against God who's been so faithful to you? Another thing to do, get help from other people in processing your sin. We so easily deceive ourselves. We cannot see our sin very easily. We can't get a good perspective on our hearts all by ourselves. For most of us, I promise you, other people see your sin more clearly than you see your sin. That's why you were thinking of somebody else's before you were thinking of your own. So why don't we just go to other people, somebody who's going to be kind and loving, but loving enough to point out my sin, and just say... Do you see sin in my life? I want to give you permission to point things out in my life that are wrong and contrary to the word. Now, I'm not saying you go to everybody and say that, but you ought to have some people in your life that can talk to you in that way. Who do you have that can speak into your life and tell you that you've... Have you put yourself in a place where nobody can tell you that you've done anything wrong? When somebody does confront you with criticism, are you, do you make it so awful for them that they will never want to do that again? Who do you have that you have given permission? I would encourage you, go to a spouse, go to a friend, go to somebody in your small group, go to a counselor, go to somebody who can ask you good questions and can help you see the sin that you can't see. Had a godly man this week quote to me, Proverbs 27 and verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Oh, it hurts when they point out the sin. Those wounds. But done rightly is faithfulness that we're telling people about this sin that is killing them, that is ruining them, that is making life miserable. Who do you have that can... Speak into your life. Well, let's get back to the story. Enough about us. Woo, that's hard work right there, all right? Let's talk about Gideon. Let's not talk about me, right? 
What happened in the story, preacher? I don't how you quit preaching, you're going to meddling now. Well, God sent a prophet who calls them to repent. You're never going to guess what happened. Guess what happens? You think they repented? No! They don't repent. And you're never going to guess what God did. I mean, when they were bad before, he sent the Midianites to do all this stuff. And so then he sends a prophet and they don't repent. I mean, what? This is the God of the Old Testament. I'm expecting him to strike them down. Bring the Midianites in worse, the Midianites and the Amalekites. Maybe he'll just have fire come down from heaven and consume them or send poisonous snakes in there to bite them all. I mean, God, that Old Testament God, he does that kind of stuff, right? So he sends a prophet and they don't repent. You know what God does? Yeah, exactly. He still sends a savior. He still raises up somebody to free them from the Midianites before they repent. Can you believe that? Look, verse 11, that's what happens. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Boy, we feel that way when we get in hard times, don't we? Where is God? <laughs> he did all this fun stuff, all this cool stuff for the people back in a long time ago. That's what Gideon's thinking. 200 years ago he did all this stuff. Where is he today? He's gone. He's packed up and left town. He's just abandoned us. Remember verse 1. What did it say? They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord's the one that gave them into the hand of the men. He hasn't abandoned them. He's allowing them to feel some of the consequences of their sin. How does he respond? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? God says, I am here sending you. I'm going to strengthen you. And he uses Gideon in order to defeat the Midianites and to free his people. But the amazing thing is, is that God raises up a Savior before the people repent. Now, Gideon is going to lead them in repentance, kind of in a cowardly way we'll see next week. But he leads them in repentance. But God sends this Savior to them before they repent. That's crazy. Who saw that one coming? It amazes us. It should amaze us that God would work in this way. So I want you to know that God does not wait on us to repent before he begins working in our heart or before he saves us or before he uses us. We see that very clearly here, don't we? I think of Romans chapter 5. Same concept in the New Testament, that while we were powerless, while we were God, ungodly, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. God is the one who takes the first step. Well, we talked about that in Sunday school this morning. That God's the one initiating. He's the one who takes the first step and the second step and the third step towards us. Listen to me, because this is very confusing. I want you to understand 
that God does not save us because we repent. We repent because God has saved us. We repent because he's done a work in our hearts, because he's the one that opens our eyes to our sin and allows us to see our sin. He's the one that gives us a heart to grieve our sin so that we can turn from that and turn back to him. That's why in Acts chapter 11, down around verse 18, it says that God granted repentance to the Gentiles. So God does not save us because we repent. We repent because God has saved us. God is so gracious. We see him raise up a savior here before the people begin to repent. And God uses this savior to lead them to repentance. I want to talk about how that plays out practically. I've heard people say before that we can't expect God to move or to work or to use us if we have unrepentant sin in our lives. Now, certainly, there are times that we have sin, and God's not going to move until, until we do something about that sin. That is true. But that's not always the case. You see that here in the book of Judges, Right? I mean, the whole point of Judges chapter 6 is that he sends a Savior before they repent, and then the Savior leads them in repentance. That's the point of the gospel, Romans 5. That while he were, we were his enemies, that he demonstrates his love for us and that Christ dies for us. Think about that statement. We can't expect God to move or work or use us if we have unrepentant sin in our life. I understand what people mean when they say that. But think about that. How could that even be true? I mean, our sin is so deep, you can't repent of all your sin. It's not possible. Or as Luther says, we need to repent of our repentance. Even our repentance is not deep enough. It's not godly enough in our sorrow over our sin. We always have unrepentant sin in our life. If God revealed all of our sin to us at once, we would be undone. We wouldn't be able to handle this. One only shows us a little bit at a time because of his grace and his mercy. He doesn't overwhelm us with our sin. We always have sin in our life that we have not grieved because God has not opened our eyes to it. So anytime God works through anybody, they've got unrepentant sin in their life. But God is so gracious. He does use broken and messed up people to achieve his purposes. By the way, that's the only kind of people he uses. That's the only kind of people that there are. Now, I don't want to get off in one ditch. God is gracious, but I also want you to understand that God is holy. There is a purity to God. He does hate sin. These people asked for a Savior, and they got a spokesman. And they got the spokesman because God wanted to point out their sin, and he wanted them to turn from their sin. He demands that their idols be destroyed and that the people are faithful to him. And so sometimes we get in the other ditch and we say, yeah, God is so loving and gracious and that much is true. And then we say, because God is so loving and gracious, it doesn't really matter if I recognize my sin. I've always got sin, so I'll just do whatever I want to do and God will still use me. Don't forget verse 1. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and God gives them over the hand of the Midianites. I know some of our folks... Looked at Jude recently. There was a women's Bible study Tuesday morning on Jude. Remember Jude 4? 
that there are godless people who turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. The Bible says that that is wrong. It is true, God loves broken and messed up people, and God uses broken and messed up people, but it's also true that God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and in our mess. And he's always, if we're growing in the faith, showing us a little bit of our sin so that we can see it and grieve it and turn from it and back to him. And as soon as we do that, you know what he does? He shows us some more of our sins so that we can grieve it and then turn from it and turn back to him. And the Christian life is always a process of seeing out more and more of our sin so that we can grieve it and turn back to him. That's what Christian maturity looks like. That's what growth in the Christian faith looks like. Oh, God is so good not to overwhelm us with all of our sin at one time. Think of Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. <laughs> Do you not know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Will you repent today? Do you see God's kindness that he doesn't overwhelm you with your sin? That he's always taking the first step and the second step? Maybe there are things you're grieving, but have you really repented? Maybe you're here this morning because there are, you're here because there are circumstances in your life that you're crying out to God for him to fix. And maybe you feel like Gideon talked about up there in 14 that God has abandoned you because of the circumstances you're in. And you're thinking if God has abandoned, if God's with me, then why has all this stuff happened? I'd encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, what is it you're teaching me? What is it you're showing me? What is it you want me to grieve and turn from? Ask him, Lord, how are you using this difficult thing for my good? Because Romans 8 and verse 20 assures us that he is. Maybe your sorrow and your grieving is not leading you to true repentance. These folks that we read about here cried out to God, not because they wanted God, but because they wanted relief. If all you want is for God to come and fix your circumstances, if that would be enough for you, if God would just come and fix your circumstances, i got to tell you this. Even if he comes and fix these circumstances you're here about today, you're never going to be happy. And here's why. Number one, even if he fixes these circumstances, circumstances always change. Something else will happen in the future. And if you're dependent on your circumstances to have true joy or to have true security or true peace, you will never get there if it's dependent on the circumstances that you live in. Second of all, even in the best of times, even you know, if things are going great with my family, sometimes they're not going so well at work. And even if they're going great at work, maybe they're not going so well at church. In a fallen and broken world, there are Circumstances that are good, and, and they're all happening at the same time. You're never going to get to a place where everything is going really well, not for a long time. So if that's what you want, it's just a change in your circumstances. You're always going to be unhappy because you live in a broken world. You'll never have pure joy. You'll never find pure peace. I encourage you not to look to God as a means to an end, not something that can just fix your circumstances, but you would look to him as the end in itself. 
that you would look for true joy, that you would look for true security, that you would look for all that you seek and desire in him. That's the only way you'll ever be satisfied. Now, one caveat before I close. I want to be true to Scripture. Sometimes we come and we ask God to change our circumstances, and he does it, okay? We've seen it happen four times here in the book of Judges. They just asked about their circumstances, and God was gracious, and he changed it. So I want to be clear. Sometimes God does change your circumstances even before you repent. But sometimes God says, I'll change your circumstances. But first, I'm going to change you. And I'm going to change your heart. And there's something I have for you to learn in these circumstances. And I'll just tell you, my experience from walking with the Lord is this, that most times God is more interested in changing your heart than he is in changing your circumstances. So I call you, work to be satisfied in him alone. Do that in prayer and crying out to him. Do that in getting in his word. Do that in getting in Christian community and hear other people testify how they grieve over their sin and how they're looking to God alone and how they're turning from idols so that God might use that to work in your heart, that you might be satisfied in him alone, that you might have that joy and peace despite your circumstances that cannot be taken away. Let's pray and ask God to do that in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you speak to us. Lord, thank you that you have power and that you often do change our circumstances. I thank you for that. But Father, more than that, I pray that you would give us a desire to see our hearts change. That we would not be dependent on our circumstances in order to have peace or joy but that our relationship would be so rooted in you and anchored in you and our identity would be so caught up in you that we would be able to have a joy and a peace despite what goes on in the world around us. Please come and do that in your people for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.